Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, I think they were, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, Quick strategic thinking is crucial, and with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown, and through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. When people went home at night, I didn't go home. I stayed and worked till 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. It didn't matter. I pushed it. Uh, I pushed it really hard. Uh, How hard did you push it? (laughs) (laughs) We attacked. Like, we was on the attack all the time. 
If we didn't, if, if we didn't beat them off the truck, if we didn't beat them through tech, if we didn't, if we wasn't first quick in practice, if we wasn't first quick on the average, if we didn't win the race and lead all the laps, we had something to do. Who had the best hair on that team? Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know I can't do an interview and not mention your just epic mullet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. mullets are cool. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Steve, it has been a crazy week here in Las Vegas for yesterday's South Point 400 and getting the Rusty Wallace commemorative issue of Grand National Scene into people's hands. Jeannie, Adam, Jesse and their buddy Ian Tavano all made the trip out here. And listen, I put them to work. <laughs> That's what you should have done. They've got to earn their keep. <laughs> I bet you they were passing out grand national scenes everywhere. They absolutely did. Now, Adam kept telling everybody that he and Jesse and Ian were cheap labor. And my, <laughs> my response to that was, Having kids is as far from being cheap as it is possible to get. <laughs> Absolutely. And if they hit the casino, whoo, that wasn't cheap either. As for the papers themselves, I could not be more pleased with how they turned out or with the reception they got. Of course, we had to go old school and we passed them all throughout the garage. And Steve, you would have been very pleased with how well received they were especially in the garage and everybody coming up and, and remembering grand national scene and winston cup scene that was pretty cool yeah i remember those days rick our guys passing them out big bundles of paper all the way through the garage area getting all kinds of compliments when they came to the truck and all the crewmen saying man we just love this paper we read it here we read it at home we read it in motel rooms, read it on the airplanes if we have to. So I'm very pleased that the reception was that good in Vegas. Although I do have one complaint. Oh. Used to, when we would pass out newspapers in the garage, we would get ink all over ourselves. I never got the first drop of ink on me this entire week. Now, I was disappointed in that. I don't know if that was because of how well they were printed or the quality of paper that they were printed on. But I didn't get any ink on them. Well, Rick, it doesn't make any difference. I don't have to look at your hands to know <laughs> you did your job. People don't get ink on their hands anymore because newspapers are <laughs> hey, hard to exist anymore, Rick. <laughs> I thought I was going to have to explain to some people what a newspaper actually was. <laughs> yeah. You talk about the good old days. Huh? All right. So last year. If you remember when we came to Las Vegas, we had a celebrity encounter with Carrot Top. Oh, yeah. Okay. If I gave you 10,000 guesses, you would never guess who we came into contact with yesterday. No, you're right, Rick. I wouldn't. I hesitate to guess. Tell me. We were in one of the suites that Las Vegas Motor Speedway has. We were watching the race and in walks Flavor Flay. Who? Steve, you know, Flavor Flav, the rapper. Come on, Steve, get hip, man. You got to get hip like me. Rick, I give all my hip to you when it comes to rapping. I don't understand it. Have fun. <laughs> Word. <laughs> <laughs> I thought Adam and Jesse and Ian, their jaws just dropped to the floor. Now, I said, Adam, you have one assignment in life now. You have to get Flavor Flav's picture with a copy of this grand national scene did you do it no <laughs> oh. shoot but yes steve i will conclude by saying this going through the gift shop it was kind of cool i saw a t-shirt that read las vegas motor speedway america's racing show place and for some reason i <laughs> had to have that t-shirt that saying is imprinted in my soul 
Well, it ought to be you say it every week twice. <laughs> Steve, it has been just a phenomenal week. It's been a very successful week. The reception has been awesome. And I'm looking forward to next year and the guests that they have lined up for next year's Legends program. Well, Rick, congratulations on a job well done. Steve, this week in our first segment, in the second installment of our interview, Harold Holly gives us the lowdown on Chad Little's monster 1995 Bush Series season, his incredibly intense expectations and work ethic, and finally getting hooked up with Jeff Green. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the August 3rd, 1995 issue of Winston Cup Scene. Sam Bass provides the artwork for a Brickyard 400 preview, which includes a collection of stories on Jeff Gordon's rise to superstardom, the Hendrick Motorsports crew chiefs, and engine builder Randy Dorton. Chad Little stages a comeback win at South Boston. There's a review of 43, the Richard Petty story, and you react to a recent Sports Illustrated cover story proclaiming NASCAR as America's hottest sport. And Rick, back in 1995, NASCAR was indeed the nation's hottest sport. Now, Steve, I, you know, I don't want to make too big of a connection there, but it seems to me that I was hired by Winston Cup scene and then NASCAR immediately was proclaimed as America's hottest sport. So hiring me, America's hottest sport, you know, I got to make that connection. No, Rick, pure coincidence. Get out of that fantasy world you're in. <laughs> you're killing me, Smalls. You're absolutely killing me. <laughs> Steve, this week we have increased Patreon support from Gary Johnson. And listeners, I do want to remind you, if you are a Patreon supporter, for as little as a dollar a month, you're going to get one of these commemorative Rusty Wallace issues that we did for Las Vegas. And again, the reception was awesome. So that's definitely a awesome perk for our supporters. We couldn't have done it without. And you want to get this commemorative issue. It is going to be a keepsake item for sure. You can also support the show by grabbing a t-shirt over on our online store. Enter the promo code Sasquatch for 25% off the same vault and Rick and Steve editions. You can show your support with a five-star rating and a written review. So listeners, if you can, please consider supporting us on a monthly basis via patreon.com slash the same podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same podcast or venmo.com slash the same podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. So 1995, you're working with Chad, and he has this absolutely monster year. One at Daytona, one at Talladega, one the next week at, I think, South Boston. I mean, he literally won on basically every won Rockingham too. Yeah, next week. Yeah, and <laughs> and just had a, a monster year. What made the difference that year uh, in, in setting that team on fire like it was? It was well. First of all, Chad was he was a great driver. He really was. But the chemistry that we had, we were such a tight knit group. You know, he had guys around him from Washington, and I ended up blending in with those guys pretty well. And, you know, the chemistry we had as a group was was just amazing. You know, we I had we had a never-quit attitude. So when people went home at night, I didn't go home. I stayed and worked till 12, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning. It, it didn't matter. Like, that was, to, to me, that was that was the only thing that there was. So we worked at it 24-7 pretty much. And, you know, again, the addition uh, with, with Dan's engineering skill, and we started applying some of that 
stuff, you know, um, and started seeing the benefit of it. And Dan was a Dan was a great math guy and everything else. I was a great race car guy or a, a good, a decent race car guy. I don't want to say great, but a decent race car guy. And we was able to combine the two. We figured out a lot of things. Like that particular year, they they uh, Goodyear came out with a tire. They we called it a Formula One sidewall, but it was a flush mount sidewall. I mean, you know, it was stiff. It was a really really stiff deal. And we was at Rockingham testing. I think that was a repave too. The year they repave. Anyway, we was at Rockingham testing, and nobody could get those cars to turn with that t- with that sidewall. So I kept looking at it, and something that Kawiki had told me, he said, pay it, you know, read your tires, know your tires. So I kept looking at this thing and going back and forth, and I'm like, why is this thing, you know, showing so hot on the inside? And I kept pulling camber out, and it made it worse. And I'm like, what is going on here? So I went in the truck and found a right front A-frame. It was like an inch longer. I mean, back in those days, we had a standard. I think we ran like seven and a quarter, seven and a half inch A-frames. Well, I went out there and got an inch longer A-frame, and I bolted on that thing. Basically took all the camera out of it. And, man, this thing lit up. Chad said, oh, my, this thing will turn on a dime and give you a nickel back. And, I mean, it was huge speed. And then uh, so from there, man, we, you know, we had, we had something that nobody else had really got on to at the time. Man, I, th- I think we beat Mark Martin at Rockingham that day by like 10 seconds. We had like a 10 second. I mean, we whooped them big. Mike Aggie was doing our engines in, Larry Wallace and Mike Aggie. So we had really good engines too. So with all the engineering stuff and from Dan and the hardcore racer in you, how close were you getting to the edge of the envelope when it came to the rules and everything? Were you... Were you just right up to it? Did you obey the rules? Or were you looking at that line in your rear view mirror? Uh, I pushed it. Uh, <laughs> I pushed it really hard. Uh, you How know, hard did you push it? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if they had templates, I was going behind wherever it was. And if it was, if it was supposed to be this wide right here, I'd go back six inches and it was going to be four inches wider. So, uh, it was all gray area stuff that I pushed. Never, never blatantly cheated. Uh, never just blatantly broke the rules, but I studied the rule book every single day. So I knew every rule that there was. I was at Rockingham whenever the, uh, the first H template, the first C post template came out and, you know, uh, I remember Buster taking a piece of plywood and cutting it out around a stock Grand Prix and putting it around the back glass over the C-posts. And whenever I saw him do that, I went back and told Bill Ingalls, I'm like, Bill, that if that's what's supposed to fit our car, that ain't going to happen, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, well, they just made the thing here, so we'll just, we'll just do what we got to do. Well, we, we were, went, took, took our car through tech. It was like three inches narrow on each side, you know, where we had everything pulled in to get more rear downforce. So, uh, you know, I, I studied that rule book 24-7. And every time that they came out with a rule, I would do whatever I had to do to not lose that speed. So it, if if I knew that, you know, if they were widening one out here, then I would narrow it somewhere else. I would do whatever I had to do to not lose anything, you know. I, man, I, I pushed them to make a lot of new templates. <laughs> so that year, 95 in particular, he, like I said, he had this monumental first two-thirds of the season, but then kind of fell off the cliff the last couple of months of the season. Well, we had some engine failures. That was that was our biggest deal. It's been a long time ago, so I can't remember the you know the exact performance. But we, uh, as far as far as you know, like good days, bad days, whatever. But we were still fast everywhere that we went. We had speed, but we got in a couple of wrecks, and then we had some engine failures, and that's what 
where's where Johnny Benson ended up beating us for the championship was that those engine failures is what got us. The following season, you wound up as crew chief. Mm-hmm. Was that something that you had been working toward, or did that just kind of happen? And somebody said, "Hey, tag, you're it." Uh, no, no, I'd been well. The 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 previous year, Gary Cogswell was the 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 you know the crew chief, but in those days, like you know, you had Barry Dodson that was a crew chief that made all the you know race day calls and whatnot. But you had Jimmy Maycar that was uh, the chassis specialist. He's the one that did all the handling stuff with Rusty and every. And that's the, you know, in in my mind, uh, then I looked up at Jimmy Maycar. I was like, that guy is the man. That's who I want to be because Jimmy was he was just so smart. You know, I whenever I worked for Allen. And we would be beside Rusty in the garage. I would watch Jimmy Maycar. I watched him like a hawk. I just thought, I thought he was the smartest guy, and that's who I wanted to be. And that's kind of how uh, race teams operated in. Well, as the next year, whenever they promoted me to crew chief, I was still doing the same job, but they moved Gary to general manager. So Gary handled all the business stuff, you know, everything like that, and then I, I took care of all the you know, chassis, handling, racing side of everything. You worked with Chad in 96 in the Bush Series with Greg and Pollux as the team owner, and then you moved with him to Roush Racing yes. in 97 as the Cup Crew Chief. What was that move like, the difference between divisions? Oh, terrible. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, it was – there was there was several things several factors that led into to, for me to make a comment like that. It was it was hard, but the 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 big thing was is there was some some things that I just I didn't understand at the time. We came out of a Ford and went to a Pontiac. Well, that that Pontiac had so much rear downforce on it compared to what the Ford did. Every note that we had, everything you know, it was like not even in the same realm of what you had to do to get the balance back on those cars. So we made that transition in, you know, from 95 to 96. My first year crew chief and with that Pontiac, man, we struggled. And we, towards the end of the year, last eight or ten races, I finally started getting some things figured out. I don't think we ran out of the top five in those races. Well, then when we went to the cup deal and the horsepower stepped up and the game stepped up and everybody was good, it, it took a while to, to figure those things out. And I mean, even way back then, like that thing had so much rear downforce that, um, you know, pretty much the standard at Charlotte was a 300, 400 rear spring, 325, four, you know. Well, we was over testing with that Sterling Cowboy car I had an 800-pound spring in the right rear back then, and that thing was a it we was just flying over there. I think we ended up sitting on the pole or outside pole for that uh, all-star race, and and uh, uh, oil pump broke yeah. on the first lap. Uh, oil pump belt flew off. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that was uh, understand understanding the the aero balance was was a huge thing, you know, at that time. 1998, uh, you spent most of the year with Joe Bessie, but then you worked the last handful of races with Jason Keller at Progressive Motorsports. Was the deal with Jeff Green already on the table at that point, or did that come later? It came later. So when I worked with Joe that short period of time, and then Greg Greg Pollux had sold the team to Jack. So – I went to work for Joe for that, that year, and then Greg called me. And, well, it was at Charlotte, matter of fact. Greg came and see me. He said, hey, man, I'm going I'm to start another race team. Are you interested in coming back? I said, you say when? Because really? I love Greg Pollock's, man. He's yeah. He was great. Still do. So Joe found out. I saw me and Greg talking, and he knew what was coming. So he pretty much told me to go on. And uh the uh, so that that's how I ended up over there for the last few races 1999 you came into your own as crew chief and jeff came to into his own as a driver 
how quickly did the two of you get on the same page? Quick. I Real asked quick. him. I asked him that same question. He said, "When I went into the first turn <laughs> of the first lap." <laughs> well, it it kind of started before that. Scott Mercer was um, Michelle's cousin. But anyway, Scott and I worked at Bahari together. So that's how I met Jeff was through Scott Mercer. I I started following Jeff, started watching him, and I I thought he was an awesome race car driver. And we uh, – Chad got hurt. He hit the fence at Charlotte and broke his shoulder and his leg. We had to have somebody to – to start, you know, to, to fill in, Chad could start the car. Was uh, Myrtle Beach was our next race, and and uh, had a couple weeks off, so we had time to get prepared for it. So I I, I talked him into getting Jeff to do it because uh, Jeff was so great at Nashville, and Myrtle Beach has got some of the same characters characteristics. Jeff uh, he came there, and uh, Chad started the race and ran the first. Till the first caution, and the first caution came at like lap thirty. But we got Chad out and put Jeff in and lost a lap. And Jeff got in that thing, unlapped himself, and drove all the way back to third. Like, <laughs> and while we were there practicing, that was the first time Jeff and I really got to work together. And when he was driving, like he, he started calling me the shock doctor because that was when Penske was first coming out with rebuildable shocks. And he would tell me this and I'd take a shock apart and put it back together. And, and Jeff was just like, Oh man, I ain't, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it, it started clicking. Uh, so, you know, that, that was where it first got going. But when Jeff, and as a matter of fact, when it, whenever we started that whole deal over there with uh, PPC, Tim Feeder was supposed to drive. Well, it ended up being a conflict with Kleenex and something, you know, yeah. something went down. They wouldn't let Tim do it. And then whenever they wouldn't let him do it, Greg asked me, he said, who do you want? And I said, I want Jeff Green. And he said, uh, well, I had this guy in mind. I said, no, I want Jeff Green. And he said, okay, well, if that's what you want, he said, let's see if we can track him down. So uh, I went to searching him down, and actually we found him in a tree stand in Kentucky. He was he was hunting. <laughs> <laughs> and, Surely not, not Jeff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was in a tree stand in Kentucky. So he he came, you know, he he agreed to do the deal. Man, from from day one, I, I just I thought he was the best, you know, the best of the best. You won three races that year, uh, Nashville, Myrtle Beach, and Memphis. You had been a part of wins before, but this time you were the crew chief. Mm -hmm. What did that mean to you? It was big, <laughs> you know, uh, but I, I was still so focused on getting better and everything. Like, it, you know, the, that win would last for me for that night. After we got after we got the celebration party over that night, the next day I I forgot we'd even won a race. I was so focused on trying to get better and move to the the next deal. It, it, you know, it was a little while before I looked back and said, "Man, you know, we won some races." <laughs> End of the year, you were second to Dale Junior in points. Were you satisfied with that, or did that tick you off for the next year? No, no, I was. I wasn't satisfied at all. <laughs> I was mad. Uh, I was ill because we missed that race at Rockingham. Right. And I don't know. Uh, I don't think. If you just did the math, I, I still don't think that would have won us the championship. Right. Yeah. But so many things evolve. I mean, we were fast. And I, I think I think we were P1 or P2 or top three. Whenever we were there, but if we'd have been in that race, who's to say we wouldn't have pushed him and he wasn't wrecked? You know what I mean? I don't mean wreck him. I mean just pushing him hard enough to, right. you know what I'm saying? So, so I was a little ill about about that. And man, we were uh, we had a group of guys that that totally believed in Jeff. They totally believed in the system that that uh, I'd put in place at the time. And I, I called them soldiers. 
because they were. I mean, these guys, they would work 24-7. There was nothing else. There was there was no hobbies, no – nobody wanted to play tennis, play golf. Nobody wanted to do anything like that. All we did was – on even if we had a day off, we were all at the race shop. But we never, ever took a day off. And we were bound and determined to and, – and Mark Martin was our mark in the Bush Series. That guy was hard to beat. We we just we, – we kept working until we could beat him. And then whenever we figured out that he was beatable, then it made us want to work even harder. <laughs> wow. Jeff took the lead pretty early that season, and he kept it the rest of the way, and it kept growing the rest of the season. The lead and the point standings kept growing. How hard was it to keep everybody from easing up on the throttle and coasting a little bit? Because, I mean, with three months left in the season, you had a 500-point lead. You know, it wasn't really that that hard because we we raced to win. And, the, you know, from the big picture standpoint, like Greg used to get on to me sometimes because that we would push so hard. He's like, look at where you're at, man. Look at what we're trying to do. I said, we're trying to win races. I said, we win the races, the points will come. He said, yeah, but you don't, you know, you don't need to push it too hard and cost yourself trouble. I'm like, I'll deal with that whenever that happens. But our job is to win the race, and, and that's so that's the way we did it. We attacked. Like, we was on the attack all the time. If we didn't, if, if we didn't beat them off the truck, if we didn't beat them through tech, if we, didn't, if we wasn't first quick in practice, if we wasn't first quick on the average, if we didn't win the race and lead all the laps, we had something to do. And every every one of those that we didn't accomplish each week, Dan was really good at making detailed notes, and I was too. We went in and started filling the gaps. What caused us to, to, to not be first quick in practice when we unloaded? What caused us to, to be a half a tenth off here? What co- You know, and between Dan and myself, we'd sit down – and get back and, and look at every one of those small gaps and we're, we'd fill that space in. We we did something to correct that, to to correct every mark. That 2,000 year, it, it paid off. It, it worked out. All right, so this is a very important question. Who had the best hair on that team? Oh, I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know I can't do an interview and not mention your just epic mullet. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mullets are cool. <laughs> I'd still have one today, if but as you get older and you know you, your body changes a little bit, I'd start looking like meatloaf. So, <laughs> so I, I had to shorten it up some. When I talked to Jeff, he said and remembered uh, you guys winning at Myrtle Beach that year, and he said that they pretty much tore your car down to. South Boston. That was South Boston. Nuts and bolts. Oh, yeah. We put it back in the truck on frame wheels. And they were looking for evidently traction control. Yeah. What was your reaction to that? Well, first question is, did you have traction control? No, sir. Okay. Absolutely not. All right. And and I'll shoot you straight honestly. I, I didn't even know what it was at the time. I really didn't. After they went to looking so hard, I started doing some research, and I was like, well, okay. Now I know what they're after. But uh, so kind of funny story, but Mike uh, Darby and Mike Helton pulled Green and I in the trailer after we won the race. At South Boston? At South Boston. You know, because we were running. For us to finish out of the top five, we had to wreck or something. Mike pretty much told told me he he come there to get us, you know, because they was convinced that we had traction control. Everybody had complained to them, and in their defense, they was getting so many complaints that they was convinced. Now, was we, this before or after the race? This is after the race. After. Okay. Yes, sir. So he, Darby told me, he said, this is what we're getting ready to do. He said, I'm getting ready to put your car on the ground. I said, yes, sir. I said, well, tell me what you want. He said, I want the motor out. I want the windshields out. I want all the lead out of the rails. I want the calipers off the car. I want all the suspension off. I want the transmission out, rear end. I want everything laid out on the ground. All the wiring, dash, battery. 
I said, yes, sir. So I went over and told my guys, I said, all right, y'all get the toolbox polished up because we get ready to do some work. They stripped that thing all the way down to where it was nothing but a shell. There was no seat, no belts, no brake lines, no, no dash, wiring, battery, suspension. Then the, at that time, we didn't have monoblock calipers. We, we had two-piece brake calipers. They made me split the brake calipers apart, took the transmission apart, took the, took the rear gear apart. They took every single solitary piece of that thing apart. And when we put it back in the truck, I had frame wheels for that you'd slide in the frame rails to, you know, roll them in one if you got in a wreck too bad for it to roll. So <laughs> that's how we had to push the thing in the truck. And the truck was just piled with parts. Like that thing was disassembled completely. So after they got it all tore apart, they looked, and they, they took the ignition boxes and the wiring and all that. They took that with them. So when we went in the trailer, Green and I were sitting in there, and, and Mike's like, I come, here to, I come here to get you. He said, you, you know, y'all are, the, the way y'all are running, we're just having a hard time, and we're getting enough complaints to where, you know, we got to look, and we're, we're doing, I said, I said, Mr. Hilton, what? I said, what, like, what are you looking for? He said, we're looking for traction control. I said, well, Mr. Hilton, I said, you're looking in the wrong spot. He said, what are you talking about? I said, man, you're looking in the wrong spot, all that work out there. I said, hell, right there it is. It's in his shoe. <laughs> and he looked, he looked at us and said, y'all get the hell out of my office. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. but uh, Wow. So we we uh we took that thing in baskets back to the shop, put it together, reassembled everything, uh, had to put all new wiring and dash in it, and then of course they sent everything off and everything was legal, and uh, went to Myrtle Beach the next week and pumped them again, and then they just rolled us through tech, checked us like normal, pat us on the back, said good job guys. So you know they were pretty cool with us after that, but. They they sure wouldn't they sure wouldn't give us nothing, you know. Then they had a template block where you know you, you had an eighth inch, quarter inch, half inch. It was like red, blue, green, uh, stepped template block. And Darby would come to me every week. He's like, "Hey, your greens are blues, your blues are reds." So when everybody else was, you yeah. know, if they gave him a half inch, I was getting a quarter, uh, and so it. It was, it was, it was, that was, that was fun. Hey, race fans, John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Now, Steve, I have a very important question for you. You would consider me at least halfway familiar with the history of the Bush Series, wouldn't you? Well, why not? That's what you did for seeing all those years. Okay. All right. And well, a great job. of, And you did write a book. The second to, uh, well, let's see, it was second to... Uh, Second, 
What was the name of that book? (laughs) It was sung to something. (laughs) (laughs) It made such a big impression on you. You don't remember the title of it. Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Second to something. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Second to Rick Mast. Oh, wait. (laughs) No, no. Not Rick. I didn't say that. I did not (laughs) say that. (laughs) Now, with that little affirmation in hand, Ask me about the most impressive season any Bush Series driver ever had without actually winning the championship. Now, I'm not talking about cup drivers coming in and winning every race that they ran, but not going for points or the championship or anything. I'm talking about full-time drivers who had really strong seasons, but coming up short in the championship for whatever reason. Go ahead, Steve. Ask me. No, seriously, Steve, ask me, put me to the test. All right, smart guy. (laughs) What's the most impressive season a driver has ever had without winning the Bush Series championship? Steve, that is a very good question. (laughs) (laughs) And I am going to go with, in no uncertain terms, Chad Little in 1995. Consider this. Chad won at Daytona. No Bush Series regular had ever done that. Dale Earnhardt had won the previous five Bush Series season openers at Daytona, but he had retired from competition in that division during the offseason. Chad then beat Mark Martin to the checkered flag by more than nine seconds at Rockingham the very next week. Are you kidding me, Rick? He beat Mark, Mark Martin? When you say Bush Series, guys have done so well without winning a championship. I think that's the first name that came to my mind. Bush Series drivers did not beat Mark Martin at Rockingham back then. No. The trophy came to the track with his name already engraved on it. (laughs) (laughs) But when Chad won, I guess they had to go back and make a correction. Chad then won at New Hampshire, then Charlotte, and finally, and I honestly think that this is probably the most impressive achievement of all. He won at Talladega, which of course is NASCAR's biggest track. And then seven days later, he won at South Boston, which was just four tenths of a mile in length. So if you're keeping track at home, that's a short track that's intermediates and super speedways all in a single season. And Steve, he finished second to Terry Labonte at Watkins Glen. I did not know all this, Rick. In all seriousness, what a spectacular season for Chad. Well, Steve, you would have known about it if you'd read second tomorrow. Is that what we call second and none? (laughs) You just went through and looked at the pretty pictures like everybody else. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) After South Boston, Chad was just 14 points behind Johnny Benson in the Bush Series standings. But after that, the team's finishes pretty much just fell off a cliff. He still wound up finishing second to Johnny in the standings, but he was 404 points back. You're telling me that he fell from 14 points behind to 404? And you said he fell off a cliff. I think that's a pretty good analogy right here. Now, the obvious question is what happened those last couple of months? There were a couple of wrecks, and according to Harold Holly. The team experienced some engine issues, and there are some cynics who kind of snicker and say that it was at about that point when Chad's traction control device fell off the car. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not buying that. (laughs) Now, my response to that would be NASCAR was cracking down on those things, and if a traction control device had been found on that car, everybody on that team would have been hung from a long, tall tree with a (laughs) short piece of rope. (laughs) I say so, without a trial. And if Chad Little had been a part of using traction control, here's the funny part. What's Chad doing now? He's working for NASCAR in charge of officiating. Really? I did not know that. That would be kind of like Al Capone being hired as a guard at Alcatraz. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I did not know that Chad was in charge of officiating. 
I haven't seen Chad since he was on our television show years back. NASCAR this morning. He was part of the lineup. And then Harold and Jeff Green got hooked up. And here's Jeff from just a few weeks ago on episode 255 talking about how quickly he and Harold clicked. The two of you seemed to click. We did. Immediately. At what point did you know that you were onto something with him and that team? First time I went down in the corner. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Uh, wow. Yeah. Harold was just ahead of the game um, on the bodies and chassis, and he could feel – I didn't have to tell him. I mean, he could watch me, and he could read the tire temperatures and, and read the data off the car. Uh, he was – he's the best there ever – He's the best there was back then. These days, the engineers are yeah. are driving the cars, basically. So, um, you know, we had an engineer. Dan was our engineer back then, but he was, you know, throwing springs in it and changing and, and building shocks. He wasn't reading any data off the car. So, uh, Harold was just a he's a he was a racer. He grew up racing, um, but he had, you know, he could massage the body to help me. He could massage the chassis to help me, the shocks and springs. And uh, back then, you you know, you rode on springs. Now you run on bump stops and things like that. And I think that's when my career went kind of tanked out is when we started running on bump stops and coal binding springs and things like that. It took the car feel away from me. But Harold was pretty good. I, I, I enjoyed those. I wish we could do it again, you know. Here's the thing about Harold Holly. He may come across as this pretty laid back, good old country boy from the heart of Alabama, but he is as intense about his racing as it is possible to get. The guys on that 10 car, they were working at the shop or they were working at the track. This wasn't fun and games to Harold. This was very serious business to him and his team. And if he was working, he expected them to be working and Harold Holly was always working. And Steve, the thing is, this wasn't just to be getting the car to the track and make some laps. Harold expected that 10 car to be first off the truck quickest in every practice session. He expected it to be on the pole and then lead every lap. And if any of those things didn't happen, he went to work to figure out why it didn't work out the way that he had expected it to. You have managed a staff of people before at scene in your position as editor, executive editor. How would you grade Harold as a leader of people? Well, Rick, answer me this one question. Was that team noted for having a big turnaround in personnel? Yes or no? No, they actually stuck together. That tells you a lot because as obsessed as Harold was about getting his job done right, and being first at everything they could possibly do, he made the team believe that as well. And he didn't do it by being the bully. If he had been the bully, they wouldn't have stayed, right? That's my opinion. He did it by earning their respect and respecting them. Rick, when you establish respect on both sides, the employer and the employee, the boss and the staff, you can accomplish a heck of a lot. You don't have to like everybody, and they don't have to like you. But if they respect you, they will do what you say and ask of them. And if you respect them, you will ask them and do the right things, and you will do anything they will do. I think that's what the difference is. I like to think that it seemed we had that respect. Rick, you were there. How many of those staff members, even though they might not have been in a position to like everybody on the staff, they still respected each other and did the work and made seeing what it became. I think we had that. Well, I think the thing that was working in Harold's favor was the fact that everybody on that team, for the most part, had the same kind of work ethic. They were as obsessed with success as he was. So he wasn't pushing a rope here. He wasn't forcing them to work. He wasn't standing over them, making them work. He wasn't standing over them, demanding that they put in overtime. They were just like he was. Yeah. And that's what made them so successful. As for the staff at scene, we were one great, big, happy, dysfunctional family. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But you just mentioned a good part about what was going on with Harold and his guys. Our guys on the staff 
wanted to get the job done right and wanted the paper to be the best it could. Every single one of them, no doubt. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace, August 3rd, 1995, Winston Cup scene. The cover story for this issue was a preview of the upcoming Brickyard 400, which was, of course, NASCAR's second race at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And just like in 1994 for the inaugural event, Sam Bass provided original artwork for scenes indie preview issue now a couple of questions was that a commission deal where you maybe traded out ad space or what was it i'm assuming it wasn't a freebie on his part because by that point sam bass was well past the point of doing anything quote unquote for the exposure rick if my memory serves me correct i'm pretty sure it was not a commission i do think that sam probably took a trade out for art for his gallery. I'm pretty sure that's the way it went out. And I'm sure it was more than one ad. Second question. If Sam did that piece for scene, where is that painting now? Because I'm thinking it would look awesome in our studio at the NASCAR Technical Institute. <laughs> I think it would look great. Rick, I don't know what happened to that painting. I do know what happened to a print of the painting he did for the first Brickyard 400 preview. Now, you remember, that was the painting with the stock cars crashing through a painting of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, busting through. And I had one word on the cover, Indy, with an exclamation point. I had a print of that painting, and it was mounted in my house when I lived in Concord. Now, I don't know what's happened to it since I moved. I've looked for it and looked for it, and I cannot find it, and I wish I could. Steve, why did you have to tell me that? I'm sorry. <laughs> you and Margaret are going to go to work and find that sucker. <laughs> Understand? <laughs> uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Now, see, I can talk to you like that, but I wouldn't talk to Margaret like that for nothing. <laughs> no one advise you to. <laughs> The indie preview in this issue included a massive three-story package of stories on Jeff Gordon, who, of course, had won the first Brickyard 400 the year before. The Hendrick Motorsports crew chiefs, Ray Evernham, Gary Dehart, who was working with Terry Labonte, and Ken Howes, who was with Ken Schrader. And another piece on engine builder Randy Dorton, who we lost in that just heartbreaking Hendrick Motorsports plane crash. The story on Jeff focused on his burgeoning superstardom. And here's what Jeff Burton had to say. I flew on a plane the other day and a guy asked me what I do for a living. I told him I was in racing and he said, do you race against Jeff Gordon? He didn't say Richard Petty or anyone else. He said, do you race against Jeff Gordon? That shows what Winston Cup Racing is capable of doing. They've taken a guy and in less than three years have made him a household name. Now, at this point, Jeff Burton had not won a Winston Cup race yet. He was still driving for the Stavola brothers, so he hadn't quite reached the level of authority that he would in the coming years. He wouldn't be known as the mayor of the garage area for another few years. But it wasn't just Jeff Burton who was noticing Jeff Gordon's impact in the clip that we played last week, Rusty Wallace talked about being jealous of the success that Jeff Gordon was having. Well, that's only natural on Rusty's part. And it's also natural that Jeff Burton say that Jeff Gordon has captured all the attention right about at that time, because that's what he was doing. He was just turning the NASCAR world around with his success. No one really could have anticipated that back in 1992 when he started out. And yet here it is. Here's this young kid taking over the sport naturally. It's going to attract a lot of attention. Randy Dorton credited teamwork with the success of the Hendrick Motorsports engine department. Randy said, with this many people, when you've got a problem, 
you can blame somebody else. No, he didn't really say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> With this many people, when you've got a problem, you've got somebody else that you can honestly turn to to help you solve that, to help you improve yourself and get better. You can find a lot of people in our organization to help you. I don't care if it's 50 cents for the Coke machine. And Steve, <laughs> nothing says that this was nearly 30 years ago, quite like borrowing 50 cents for the Coke machine. <laughs> Boy, if we could get 50 cents for a Coke today, you know, wouldn't it be great? You got to have polling money. I don't care if it was $2.50 for the Coke machine or what cam or this engine won't run or I need another engine. There's some big decisions happened in a matter of five minutes. You talk about people pulling together and shedding a little blood. These guys will do that, and it makes you feel pretty good. Rick, do you detect a similarity in what Randy Dorton is saying as to what we've already said about Harold Holly and his team and the staff at Zine? Sounds pretty similar to me, don't you think? That's exactly what I was thinking, Steve, and I can't tell you how much it scares me to think that you and I are thinking alike. <laughs> I'm going to start getting worried here. Chad Little won the Bush Series event at South Boston despite getting caught up in an accident while trying to lap Doug Heveron on lap 59. Both right side tires went down due to the mishap, and under Bush Series rules at the time, teams could only change four tires under caution unless they had been cut in an accident. So that meant that Chad had fresh tires after that accident, and then for later, in the race. Ah, would make a difference, wouldn't it? Chad said it was very much a break. No question about that. If we'd just gotten a flat right rear, all we would have been able to change is a right rear. That probably wouldn't have done that much good. But as it was, they both went flat. It was a big break. Yes, it was. You can't beat a car with fresher tires. It would drive underneath people. Their tires weren't gripping anymore. There was a filler kind of review on the blockbuster flick 43, the Richard Petty story. Blockbuster? <laughs> uh, that's been real generous, Rich. There was a filler kind of review on the blockhead flick. <laughs> that's a little closer to the mark, I think. Let's just say that when we discussed the best NASCAR-related movies, Stroker Ace, Days of Thunder, Stroker Ace, and stroke race. Oh, come on. <laughs> 43, the Richard Petty story is never mentioned. Now, I think even the most passionate Richard Petty fans would admit that this wasn't exactly gone with the wind. <laughs> I'd say that's a fair assumption. <laughs> Richard, of course, played himself in the movie. Del Emmon was in it. Maurice Petty was in it. And Steve, there were some great period shots from around the racetrack. So that was a plus, but that was about the only plus. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> he makes me so mad. I could spit. <laughs> that's, that's Buddy Baker. <laughs> he was in the movie. Now Lee Petty was portrayed by Darren McGavin, who most people would know from a Christmas story. And Linda Petty was played by an actress by the name of Lynn Marta. And I can tell you this because I've talked to her about it, the real Linda Petty did not approve of Richard kissing Lynn Marta in this movie. Not at all. I was with Richard and a young Kyle at a function in Winston-Salem not long after the movie came out. And I said to him, well, how are you kissing that Hollywood starlet? He goes, Psh, be quiet. No, no, <laughs> don't say anything. Please. Kyle was laughing. Don't say anything. <laughs> Why do I picture Linda waiting at the front door with a rolling pin in her hand? <laughs> <laughs> or a sway bar? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. Richard was genuinely scared <laughs> of Linda at that time. Finally, the cover of the July 24th, 1995 issue of Sports Illustrated proclaimed NASCAR America's hottest sport. And you did your commentary in this issue on that article and on that cover story. Put that into perspective how big that was for NASCAR in the grand scheme of things. 
Well, I was a subscriber to Sports Illustrated for years. Never once until this time did I ever see NASCAR represented on the cover. The last time I think it ever was is when they ran a cover shot of Curtis Turner back in the 60s. Now, I don't remember another one beyond that until this one. And they ran it at the right time because in 1995, as most fans know, NASCAR absolutely took off. I mean, it became a huge, popular, nationwide sport. Not like anything that it had been before. Those were some pretty heady days for NASCAR. And to be on a Sports Illustrated cover proved it. Hello, I'm Buddy Parrott. I'm Kenny Wallace. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. Mike Malnikoff posted on X. Now listen to this, Steve. National treasure Steve Wade has covered so many NASCAR Cup races. I was curious about his opinion on some of the race trophies he saw up close through the years. Which ones were favorites, dislikes, and just memorable for being wacky like New Hampshire's giant live lobster. Now, first of all, national treasure, Steve Wade. Hey, Mike knows what he's talking about. Okay. Hey, boy, Mike. Thank you very much. Who do you think you are? Nicholas Cage? Or something? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So what's your favorite trophy that you've ever seen? Now, I would like to point out, you know, Nashville has a guitar. Is that correct? Yes. And that was pretty cool. And as far as the giant lobster up in New Hampshire, I only have a question or two. I trust that lobster was alive. And I trust he stayed alive. You don't really want to cook and eat something like that so special. Let him live. I hope New Hampshire did. Now, Martinsville's grandfather clock is far and away the most unique trophy at any racetrack. In fact, I'd say the most unique trophy anywhere. Think of this, Rick. Richard Petty has 15 of them, which means each member of his family has one for sure. And there's a lot of grateful relatives and friends who've gotten one at Christmas. <laughs> I would say that was a pretty good deal. Now, Mike didn't ask me, since I'm not a national treasure, evidently, well, then you don't need to say anything. Be quiet. Sign, <laughs> Sign us off. <laughs> Mike didn't ask me, but my favorite NASCAR trophies are the first and second place spot news awards from the National Motorsports Press Association <laughs> that I had better win in January for my stories on LWRI earlier this year. Now, I'm just putting that out there. Yeah, you go ahead, but national treasures do not need to promote themselves. Oh, you're coming back hard today. Come on, man. <laughs> okay, Steve, I'm sorry. That did just kind of slip out there. <laughs> well, okay. All right. So after my NMPA trophies for LW right story. Okay. All right. I, okay. I'll just let that go after that. My ultimate NASCAR trophy would be, as you mentioned, the Sam Bass guitar trophies at Nashville. And yeah, when 
Kyle Busch took his in victory lane, however long ago it was, and smashed it. Oh, that was like he was taking a two by four and whacking me upside the head every oh. single. <laughs> Don't know why he did it, unless he thought he was, you know, a member of the Who or something like that. <laughs> and then, of course, you did mention the Martinsville grandfather clock. I think anybody would mention the grandfather clock. That's one of the most coveted trophies in NASCAR. And when we talked to Ken Reagan a couple of weeks ago, did he say that he actually owns the first Martinsville grandfather clock? I believe he did. Yeah. He was very close to Herb Nab, and Herb left that clock to Ken in his will, if I'm not mistaken. Now, if it's not the first, I'm pretty sure it would have been one of the very earliest ones. Yes. But I'm pretty sure that he said it was the first one, and it came directly from Herb Nab. Well, you know if Herb Nab had it, and he goes way back. First time I ever met Herb Nab was in 1972. Oddly enough, at Martinsville. So there's probably no doubt that Ken Scott, one of the very first ones ever put out. Finally, not long ago, listener Dustin Ganey offered to loan us his 2005 Texas trophy for display in our studio. Now, I would have loved to have done that, but I don't want to get into displaying things on loan because I would be terrified something might happen to borrowed items while they were in my care. But also, the trophy was huge it weighs like 50 to 60 pounds and we simply didn't have the room for it in the studio not to mention the manpower to carry that thing into the studio listeners if you have a question for me and or steve you can email me at rick at the or you can post on x using the hashtag hashtag ask vault or you can go to our Facebook page and send us a message there. If you have questions, send them to us. We'll figure it out. We'll get to them. And you don't have to call us National Treasure, although I do like it. Oh, Pete, I am still coughing. There's that, but yeah, not as bad. Gracious.